Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Glad to have you along this evening. I'm Dave Mitchell, where we're going to sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And, of course, tonight is the start of what the media around Cleveland is calling the Battle of Ohio. I'm not quite sure what they're calling it down in Cincinnati, but let's find out. Let's go down south, find out what's happening in Reds territory with our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you tonight? I'm well, David, and uh, I am coming back from the, the thrill of the trade deadline as we waited with anticipation for one of our teams to do something. And uh, at least the Indians, I think, made what? How many deals did the Indians make? Two. Okay. It's two more than the Reds did, but uh, I digress. Um, yeah, the the Ohio... Bat, the Battle of Ohio is not much of a battle anymore. I, I really don't know why the Reds are playing the Indians. I don't know why we have inter, interleague play anymore. It's lost its luster. And uh, I, I hope that the new uh, commissioner of baseball, whoever that might be, will uh, take a look at that and find out it's probably not worth the time and effort. Well, I certainly hope so, and I certainly hope they get back to a uh, more of a balanced schedule, Mark. But you know, when we first started this show four years ago, do you remember what the name of it was? Uh, Mark and Dave Talk Baseball. <laughs> the Battle of Ohio show. That's right. And now the Cleveland media has picked up this interleague scrimmage, is what I call it, between the Reds and the Indians. It happens every year. We're gonna, we've got a couple of questions on our Ask Us segment coming up about the half hour of tonight's show, Mark, that are going to ask us more about this. But nonetheless... When you look at this, Mark, I can kind of understand why the Reds and Indians play. I understand why the Mets and the Yankees play. I understand why the Angels and the Dodgers play, and maybe even the Giants and the A's. But the rest of Major League Baseball, I really don't understand. We can get into more of this later, but I think in some instances, interleague baseball is good. In other instances, where you you're watching Washington play the Seattle Mariners, it just makes no sense at all. Well, I, I disagree. I don't think, I mean, look at it this way. Would you rather have four games with the Reds or four more games with Detroit or Boston or the Yankees or somebody else? I mean, that's my argument. I think you get much more interest. I'd rather have the Reds play the Cardinals or, or the Brewers or the Pirates uh, one or two more times a year than playing uh, Cleveland. I, I just don't think it adds anything to the to the equation anymore, and uh, I, I hope they do away with it. I, I certainly do, too. Well, as we enter tonight's game, which the Indians right now are winning 5 to nothing over the Reds, the Indians knocked out Alfredo Simon in the fifth inning of tonight's game. The Indians are 56-55. and 55. They're in third place, six and a half games behind Detroit, but they're a game and a half behind Kansas City, and they were four and two on the week mark. But in the wild card, the Indians are now three games behind Toronto for that wild card spot. Meanwhile, Cincinnati, that same fifty-six and fifty-five mark, they're in fourth place, but they're only four and a half games behind Milwaukee. Mark, I got to say, these two ball clubs remind me of Al Pacino in Godfather Three, where he says, "Just when I thought I was out." They pull me back in, and that's what both these clubs do. When you think they're out of it, they pull you back into it. Well, what's 
it's interesting. Both those teams have an interesting sidelight about their performance this year. On the Reds broadcast uh, this week, uh, tonight as a matter of fact, they were interviewing one of the reporters from the Cincinnati Inquirer who had been talking to a reporter from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And the reporter from the Cleveland paper said that all the years that he has covered the Indians, uh, this is the worst defensive team he's ever seen. And then he went a step further and said, no, it's the worst defensive team I've ever seen, period. And yet, they're 56 and 55. Uh, it, it was generally conceded that top to bottom, the Reds have better pitching, and they have better, much better defense, but the Indians have a better offense. So it's it's interesting that the Reds have a horrific offense. Cleveland has a horrific defense. And you would think that the teams would have done something to shore up those weaknesses because they've got the other two parts of their games covered. But neither did anything other than the Indians getting rid of Cabrera and, and perhaps picking up some better defense there. Okay, well, what the Indians did last week, nobody can really figure out if they were selling or buying. You know, there are sellers and there are buyers at the trade deadline. The Indians, really nobody can define what it is that they did at the trade deadline. Yes, they got rid of Justin Masterson for a player called James Ramsey. Now, Ramsey came from the St. Louis Cardinals farm system. I talked with Bill Ivey, who runs a website, i70.com, that is primarily covering the Cardinals and the Royals. And Ivy told me, Mark, that this Ramsey kid got caught up in the glut of outfielders in the Cardinals system when he was injured earlier this year. He was a top 25 draft pick by the Cardinals two years ago, played four years at Florida State. He's a corner outfielder with a big bat. This year he's got 13 homers, 36 RBIs, playing primarily for a double-A club the Indians immediately assigned him to Columbus. Justin Masterson, who knew what the Indians were going to do with him, Mark? Because he wasn't pitching very well. They blamed it on his left knee, his plant leg. Realistically, I think he lost his release point as far as his three-quarters to sidearm delivery, and he wasn't able to control his pitches any longer. I think he's got Steve Blast disease, although he did come out and he seemed to pitch somewhat well for the Cardinals over the weekend in winning his first outing with them. As Dribble Cabrera, as you know, I was on the bandwagon to get that guy out of town. And I was happy that they did it. I would have accepted a couple of broken bats and some batting practice baseballs for him. Instead, they got a 24-year-old utility infielder in Zach Walter, who seems to have some power. I've talked to a couple of my friends in the Washington area that run blogs, and they say, this kid can indeed play Major League Baseball and may be a contributor in a year or two. Well, my question is, if that's the case, why did Washington give him up for a guy who's going to be gone at the end of the year? And immediately the Nationals moved Cabrera to second base. He's not playing shortstop. Again, I say, Mark, I can't figure out if the Indians were sellers or buyers. They got rid of a couple of guys that they wanted to get rid of, but they didn't bring anybody back in return that can help the Major League Club right now. Well, I think a lot of the, you know, when you look at these trades, you, you asked me what the reaction was with the 
the fan base down here, and there was a lot of griping about it. <clears throat> but I, I think it, to, to look at the Indian situation and the Reds, you, you have to look at more of a team philosophy. And there are certain teams in Major League Baseball that have a philosophy that they are going to win the World Series every year. That's what their goal is. They want to win the World Series every year. At one time, you had the New York Yankees that were doing that. The Indians did that. The Braves did that at certain times in their development. And the team that does it now more than any other is St. Louis. They try to win the World Series every year. And I have to admire that organization because that is a philosophy. And you think about why they do that. It's because they believe in their farm system. They believe they can trade off some players on the 25-man roster and pick up some pitching to take them into the playoffs and have them win a World Series. Now, did they, they give up some talent? Yeah, they did. But they believe that they can you know, reconstitute that talent through drafts or trades or free agency, so they're not afraid to go out and make a deal. The Reds, they do not play. They do not try to win the World Series every year. They just don't. They would rather be patient and hopefully develop some players over the long term. And when you do that, you end up with a possibility of developing a Jay Bruce, who doesn't perform to, to expectations, uh, or a Tony Singrani, who has not lived up to expectations, or any number of players, because the Reds don't try to win. Now, maybe they argue it's economics. The Reds are going to get a huge amount of money from Major League Baseball TV this year, that would make them competitive if they wanted to be. You know, I, I just, I can't argue with their philosophy. It's their money, not my money. They can do with it what they want. But it's interesting to look at some of these teams and say, yeah, that team, like Oakland this year, they're trying to win a World Series. Yeah, and and, and that is something Billy Bean coined the term Moneyball. He's the one that really put that term into vogue, Mark. But this year, he's gone completely away from Moneyball in all realism because he's shooting his wad. He's gotten rid of his two top prospects. He got rid of his cleanup hitter in Cespedes, and he went out and strengthened that pitching staff. And what he thinks is strengthened the hitting from top to bottom in hopes to win a World Series this year. Yeah, and I have to admire that. I mean, again... I think fans forgive general managers for acts of commission. They go out and they try to make a trade. They do the best they can to get their team better. It doesn't work out. Okay, well, that's life. What I don't think fans like is when the team, like the Reds, I mean, the Reds at the All-Star break were a game and a half out of first place and a half a game out of the wild card. And what do they do? They come out of the All-Star break, they lose seven straight games. And uh, they, they lose 8 of 10 and basically put themselves in a position where it's going to take a heroic effort now to get back into the, to the running where they, they've, they've had an incredible amount of low-scoring games. And just to put this in perspective, Dave, this year the Reds have been shut out 10 times. They have scored one run 14 times. That's 24 times. They have scored one or zero runs. 35 times, they have scored zero, one, or two runs. 35 times. 
And if you know you're not going to get any offensive output from your team in May, or at least anybody with a brain would have assumed that, why wouldn't you go do something? No, I agree. Do you have any idea what their record is in those 35 games, Mark? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Uh, in the, let me see here. I have it written down. Um, on the shutouts, on, on, on games of one to nothing, they are, they've won two and lost one, two, three, four. They're two and five. On games two to one, uh, they have, they're five and nine. And I don't have it on uh, games where they've scored two runs. But on games that they, the score of two to one or one to nothing, they are seven and fifteen. Wow. No, I'm sorry, five and fifteen. Five and fifteen. Okay. Yeah, still. Yeah. And yet they sit back and they and they do virtually nothing, Mark. I mean, not virtually. They did nothing. That's right. There's no virtually about it. They didn't do anything, and that's the frustrating part. And obviously, I'm, I'm not smarter than Walt Jockety. I'm not saying I am. There has to be a reason where he would make no. He didn't make any moves. I mean, you would think, my gosh, you could pick up anybody to hit better than some of the players they have right now, hitting in the you know in the low two hundreds all year. Uh, they have no power on the team at all, and I don't know. It, it's just hard to believe they couldn't have found someone. But uh, he's the general manager. That's the decision he made. So the Reds fans have to live with it. But you ask I know Tom Tom Hamilton said tonight, Mark, the Indians announcer, before the game that, yes, the Reds are having trouble scoring. Yes, they didn't do anything at the trade deadline. But according to some of the Reds reporters that he talked to earlier tonight, Walt Jockety's feeling was with the pitching staff that they have, especially the starting rotation, they have a chance to win every game that they set their feet on the field for. Oh, sure, they have a chance. You're absolutely right. And when you have, uh, what, 35 times when they've scored zero, one, or two runs, those chances go down precipitously. Uh, 35 times already, it's probably going to be 50 by the time it's over. That's almost a third of your games that you're only going to score two or less runs. I don't care how good your pitching is. You know, you're not going to win the majority of those games because other teams are going to score more than one or two runs a game. So I don't disagree with his his philosophy that they have a chance to win every game because of great pitching, but why wouldn't you enhance your chances by going out and getting a left fielder that could hit more than 230? Ryan Ludwig has six home runs, 28 RBIs, and he's the left fielder. He's the guy who's supposed to deliver 25, 30 home runs and 90 RBIs. You have Jay Bruce hitting 213, 10 home runs. And you, you can't look at those numbers and say, yeah, oh, oh, we have great pitching. We're, we have a chance to win every game. No, you don't. You don't. Not when you have that many bad hitters in the lineup. Well, Mark, I want to turn my attention to another team in the National League that I feel has had probably just as many injuries that the Reds have had this year especially to the pitching staff, and they went out at the beginning of the season and made trades to solidify they didn't give up this year, and that's the Atlanta Braves. And they're 58-54. and 54. Yes, they're three and a half games behind Washington. But, Mark, 
had Walt Jockety been the GM of the Atlanta Braves, he probably would have called a halt to the season and just said, well, it's one of those years. But instead, what did the Atlanta Braves do? They went out, made trades, paid for some pitching, rebuilt their pitching staff basically on the fly in spring training because they did not want to give away this season. Well, I'm a a big fan of the Atlanta Braves and the St. Louis Cardinal organizations because they always put a competitive team on the field. And they do, they're aggressive. And I like what Billy Bean did this year. There's a number, even the general manager from Seattle, uh, you know, going out and signing Cano and getting some, they get some great young pitching up there. And that team isn't far from being a, a, a tough, tough team. Uh, you know, you admire those teams. You look at what Milwaukee's done. Uh, they've had some some really good years, and, and they're adding to their, their depth. So it's there are teams out there that have a different approach. It's all philosophical, I guess. Uh, and, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not qualified to presume I know all the intricacies and the, the situations that were presented to Walt Jockety, but it would take nothing more than a sit-down with, with a reporter and just say, here's our philosophy. Here, here's why we did what we did, which was nothing. Because maybe somebody wanted to give us two minor leaguers for Joey Votto or something. I don't know what the reason was. but Or that somebody wanted Johnny Cueto for a 240 hitter. Okay, don't make that deal. We understand it. But, you know, his philosophy, Jockety's, is, is to keep everything so close to the vest that it frustrates the fans. Unlike Billy Bean, well, you know, Billy Bean says, here's why... Here's what I'm doing, guys. I got a plan. And you might like the plan, but I got one. <laughs> it looks like there's no plan here. I've got to ask you this question, Mark. Boston gives up Johnny Gomes and John Lester for Cespedes. Couldn't the Reds have gotten him for Johnny Cueto and Ryan Ludwig? Oh, I think they could have got him for less than that. Uh, but I'm not sure. I, I think Cueto is a better pitcher than Lester right now. Uh, but you're right. The, I, Reds, the Reds could have given up, I think, Bailey. They could have given up maybe Singrani and a, and a top minor leaguer to get in Cespedes. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to assume, you have to make the assumption that Jockety knew Cespedes was on the block. You had, you had to make that assumption. So You have but, to. Yeah, I mean... He couldn't have been oblivious to that. I'm sure every general manager in the league knew that. So what was he afraid to give up? I mean, assuming he gave up Cueto, who's, I think, the best pitcher in baseball right now, or one of the best, you'd have to think about that long and hard because Cespedes is one of the great power hitters in baseball right now. I think he's only going to get better, and that's what the Reds need. So, again, we, Dave, we don't know the conversations – what was asked for by Oakland or anybody else. But, I, again, I, I, I think Boston just made some great trades because I think they said, okay, you know, we're done. We're not going to make it in two, 2014. There's a chance they're going to get Lester back next year. Right. <laughs> and have Cespedes back. Uh, so that, that's going to end up a great deal for them. And they can sign Cespedes long term. Sure. They can do that. And I think, you know, my whole, my whole philosophy was the Reds had more to give Oakland than Boston gave Oakland 
for Cespedes. And you've got this guy tied up through next year. Yes, he's a free agent. But that gives you, Mark, a year to do something with the higher-priced contracts that you've got in Homer Bailey, Phillips, and Votto if you want to do something with Votto. You've got a year to do something with those contracts and then use what you're saving to pay this guy because he's going to be a long-term solution and could be the face of your franchise for years to come. But instead, as far as we know, and you're giving Walt Jockety a lot more credit than, than I'm going to give him, I think Walt Jockety the last two years has done nothing but stolen Bob Castellini's money by portraying himself as a GM and doing nothing. Uh, because he's got a baseball team right now, Mark, that we know they have not been able to produce runs for at least three years. And he pinned his hopes three years ago on Scott Rowland, and, and nothing happened. He's pinned his hopes now this year on a team that just can't hit, and he's out, out really negotiated himself, as we've gone throughout time and time again, on Homer Bailey, Joe, uh, uh, Joey Votto, and Brandon Phillips. He's outpriced himself with some of the other players that he's going to need to sign in the future. And unfortunately, I think he's put this organization in a very, very tough bind for years to come. You know, today or yesterday, I forget what day it was, I was on, I went to uh, Red's Trade Rumors or Cincinnati Red Trade Rumors, I forget what it was. And there was a number of, of articles in there that I was looking at just out of curiosity after the trade deadline. And one of the guys uh, proffered that he suggested a trade that would help both teams long-term would not be Im impactful to either team financially would be the Reds to trade Homer Bailey to Colorado for Troy Tulowitzki. His contract is just almost the same as Homer Bailey's, about $20 million a year. And he, he went into some detail about, number one, the Rockies have some really good offensive players in the minor leagues, uh, some guys on their uh, current roster are maturing. That third baseman, I forget his name, but he's, he's a really good one, um, is coming into his own. Uh, the Reds have Stevenson ready to come in and replace Bailey. And his premise was that this is a trade that would not impact either team economically, but would help both teams significantly on the field. Well, it makes sense to me on paper. And on the field, I think it makes even more sense for the Reds to make a trade like that. Unfortunately, you know, I think it was towards the beginning of the year, Mark, you and I were talking about the trade deadline. And I think it was in April or May, and we were talking about the Reds needing a hitter. And we were asked on our Ask Us segment, which team do you think will do something toward the trade deadline? And I said at the time, I don't think Walt Jockety will do a thing. I said, I think the Cleveland Indians, even though I don't expect them to do a lot, I think the Indians will do a couple of, you know, a minor trade, which is what I consider Masterson and Cabrera, to be honest with you, a couple of minor trades. But I didn't expect Jockety to do anything at the trading deadline. But then the more the injuries came into play, the more I thought, this guy has got to do something. Mark, even if he has got an excuse for everything he has not done doesn't he have to portray to the ownership of the Reds sometime that he is at least doing something to improve this team? Well, Dave, here's what we don't know. We're, we're, we're both looking at, at askance at, at, at Bob Castellini, or at uh, Walt Jockety, uh, 
and saying he didn't make any deals. We don't know what his marching orders are from Castellini. We, we, we assume he is saying, you know, make a deal if you want to or if you have to or give me the explanation. But it's almost as if when you don't make any deals, it's almost as if you're being told not to make any deals. So, yeah, I'm not happy with what the, the lack of activity from, from Jockety, the presumed lack of activity. But, again, what, it's what we don't know that, I guess, prohibits me from jumping all over uh, Jockety because you don't know, number one, the deals that were out there, number two, what his marching orders are economically with the team, what he, what has he been told to do or not to do. And one last thing relative to these trades, again, I, I was online looking at a number of websites today, and there's there, there's a belief there's going to be a run of deals uh, through the waiver deal, you know, waiver deals between now and uh, August 31st, that if the Reds are closed, presumably you'll bring in some help. But to me, that's not the issue. That That is an emergency move to try and, you know, get you over the goal line. You're fourth and one, and you need a fullback. That should have been done in May, and now it would be moot because they this team scores so, you know, has gives up so few runs. They have great defense. If they just scored a run, a run and a half or two runs a game more, they'd be in first place by seven or eight games. Yeah, and and as we've said, since the All Star break, the Reds are five and eleven and averaging two and a half runs a game. You, as you pointed out with your stats earlier, you just can't win a division. You can't get into the playoffs scoring two and a half runs a ball game. And you can sit down, Mark. And you could try to justify it all you want if you're Walt Jockety that it's because of the injuries. But Matt Kane, the ace of the San Francisco Giants, is out for the year. He's going to undergo surgery on his right elbow for bone chips on Wednesday. Do you think the Giants are giving up? No. <laughs> they, Absolutely they, not. They won today, as a matter of fact. I was watching that game on MLB uh, TV, and they, they beat the Mets. And uh, that's one of the teams the Reds have to beat out for a wild card. Yeah, I, they, absolutely not. You know, Saturday night I found it very interesting. I've got to say this about the Indians' front office, Mark. They're a first-class organization. I will give them that much. They're a first-class first class organization that really does not want to spend a lot of money. But they do treat their players well. They treat them with a lot of class and a lot of dignity. And Saturday night was Jim Tomey statue night, which I think was right up there on par with when the Reds uh, honored Joe Morgan with his uh, Joe Morgan statue night down at Great American Ballpark. Jim Tomey, I'm not sure if anybody knew this, had not retired. He was just out of baseball for the last couple of years and had not retired, and Saturday the Indians surprised everyone, including Tommy, by asking him to sign a one-day contract with the Indians and retire. And that's what he did. He signed a one-day contract and actually retired as a Cleveland Indian, which has done a lot in professional football. This is the first time I can actually remember a Major League Baseball team doing this. But as far as I'm concerned, Mark, the Indians have two surefire Hall of Famers over the next five years in Tommy and Omar Vizquel. I think Jim Tomey, with his 600 home runs, 
and his RBIs and his postseason homers and everything. He's one of the few guys, Mark, that I think you can look at and say he's one of the truly nice guys in baseball, and he was one of the few that was not tarnished by the steroid era in some way, form, or fashion. I want to ask you right now, do you think, and, and be honest, I don't think this is the case, but do you think Jim Tomey in five years deserves to be a unanimous entrant into the Hall of Fame? Not unanimous, no, I don't. Uh, but I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, there's, you know, I think when you're talking about first-round Hall of Famers, I think you have to have a guy who perhaps was more proficient defensively than Tomey was. But on you know on the offensive side, certainly I think every number he threw up there, perhaps without maybe batting average, uh, this guy was a stud, and uh, certainly one of the best players in the history of the, of the franchise. Uh, I mean, you could argue, off the top of my head, who would I think was a better power hitter for the Indians than him? I, I don't know who it would be, uh, but he he was he's a special player, and it, it's interesting. Uh, I heard Vince Scully. Uh, this was about a month ago. And they were talking about the fact Vince Kelly just, in fact, about a week ago, actually, that he had renewed for another year as an announcer for the Dodgers. And yes. talking about great, I think he's, what, 80, 84 years old or 83 years yes, old? Yes, 84 years old. Okay. And he was talking about the great players that he had seen. And he had never seen uh, Lou Gehrig play, but he knew players that did. And he wow. asked them, who, who do you think most reminded you of Lou Gehrig. This this was when that you know his famous speech was last last week I think mm -hmm. anniversary of that, and he was told by whomever this older player was it was Lou Gehrig that from a physical perspective they were both really really strong guys thick legs big butts big arms uh, powerful guys and this player whoever it was said he thought it was it was Lou Gehrig and Jim Tomey were most were most alike. And uh, just a little anecdote, when I was in, I think I was in New York, I was going up to my room at a hotel in New York, and I'd get on, and there, there had been a guy in the bar earlier I'd seen, and he looks really familiar to me. I, I know that guy, I know that guy. And he gets on, and he says, hi, how you doing? I said, fine. And I said, I'm sorry, but you look familiar. And he said, oh, well, I, I, I play baseball. And I said, what's your name? He said, Jim Tomey. I said, oh, God. <laughs> you know, I said, I apologize. I knew I'd seen you, and I didn't know where. Well, he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to put my bag away and, you know, something to eat. He says, well, I've already eaten, but you want to have a drink? I said, yeah. <laughs> so we, we go back downstairs, and unfortunately, when we walk into the bar, like, 17 people did recognize him and know who he was and, <laughs> up, you know, interrupting us and stuff like that. But I'm telling you, I've met a lot of major league ball players. He was one of the nicest, most out there friendly guys that I, that I've ever met. I don't know what his reputation is in Cleveland, but just from a one-on-one -on -one perspective, I, I just couldn't believe how friendly he was. He, I bet 20 people walked up to us and asked him for autographs. And nobody asked for mine, David. I want you to know that. Well, they yeah, didn't. they they probably didn't recognize you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <But> <laughs> well, you know, as far as as far as his reputation in Cleveland is, Mark, it's impeccable. 
even when he left Cleveland, he left with a better taste in the fans' mouths than you could say Manny Ramirez or Albert Bell did. Um, matter of fact, Jim Tomey's wife is a former newscaster here in Cleveland, and what was funny was um, the way they met was she was a newscaster at Channel 3 up here in Cleveland, and he saw her on the news, and one time when one of the Channel 3 sportscasters were in the locker room interviewing him after the game, after the interview was over, he pulled that sportscaster off to the side and said, hey, who's this Andrea lady that you guys got doing the news? And they got talking about her, and this sportscaster hooked them up, and they've been married ever since and have two two great kids. Well, you know, it's nice when nice things happen to nice people. <laughs> you know, that sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish, but uh, I was taken by what a nice guy he was and uh, how, he, how he was so friendly and open and uh, self-deprecating and telling great stories and Everybody who came up was a friend, you know, it seemed. And uh, th- I wish more ballplayers were like that. But he, he was very articulate and uh, funny. And uh, I really enjoyed my hour with him, having a couple beers. Very definitely so. Hey, it's time for our Ask Us segment here tonight. You can send in your questions to Ask Us or DMitch at ultimatesportstalk.com or send me a tweet at OHBB Cohost. Mark, we've got just a couple of questions tonight. The first one is from Rebecca B., and she asks us, folks, i got to be honest with you. <laughs> Mark knows what I'm going through here tonight. Last week I broke my glasses, and I cannot see past, virtually almost see past the nose on my face. So I'm trying to read these Ask Us questions, so, so please bear with me. But Rebecca C. Uh, asks us here tonight, why are these games between the Reds and the Indians during the weekdays and not on the weekends? Mark? David, as you well know, we've had this discussion for four years between the two of us. Why do you make the games special and then make them where fans can't travel during the week to go see the teams play? Right. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. If you're going to have them, then make them on the weekend so – Reds fans can go to Cleveland. Cleveland fans can go to Cincinnati and and, and make it worthwhile. It, it's counterproductive. It's like when the team puts a shift on for a left-hand hitter and moves three infielders over to the second base side of the bag, and then the pitcher pitches him on the outside corner. Makes no sense. Yeah. It's illogical. Well, you know, and why, why do they do it? I mean, even they set up the games, Mark, between the Yankees and the Red Sox, they do them on the weekends. You hardly ever see the Yankees and the Red Sox play during a weeknight, and especially when the Yankees and the Mets are playing each other. They're always on the weekends, and they are within, I mean, what, what's the proximity of Boston to New York? Three hours? Yeah, less, actually, but... Yeah, some, somewhere in that area, especially the, 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 uh, the Mets and the Yankees. Are 25 minutes. So, but they're on the weekends. They're not on the weeknights. So it makes absolutely no sense as to why they actually do it that way. Well, hopefully the new commissioner will change that. I I certainly hope so because, you know, you're you're looking at a situation that is, is kind of comical. Okay, Carl asks us tonight, 
Mark, and it, it's kind of on this Jim Tomey theme, which player will be in the Hall of Fame first, Jim Tomey or Omar Vizquel? In my opinion, I think both of them. And, and yes, you can call me uh, jaded if you'd like. Yes, I, I probably am. I think they both are first ballot Hall of Famers. I think Derek Jeter is a first ballot Hall of Famer. I've gone on record as saying there is absolutely no Hall of Fame until Pete Rose is in it. But, you know, these, these writers, these baseball writers, Mark, I know for a fact that they are not going to put in unanimously Jim Tomey or Omar Vizquel. Derek Jeter maybe because he's a Yankee. But the other two, I would say an 80% vote. I still think they both get in on the first ballot. You've said what you want to about Jim Tomey. What about Omar? Do you think he goes in on the first ballot? No, I don't. I think Jeter does. And I think the reason is maybe you hit it because of the New York press. Uh, but I think overall, uh, you know, Vizquel has to be rated in the top five of all-time defensive shortstops. Uh, Jeter is not in the top five, but he's pretty good. But he had much, much better offensive numbers. And I, I think because of that, he'll probably get more votes than, than Vizquel. Uh, but, I mean, it, it, it's a small difference. It's, it's a difference without a distinction in many areas because they both were such out, outstanding players. They played for a long time. Uh, they kept their their noses clean, you know, during their careers. I don't remember anything negative about Vizquel. Certainly nothing negative about Jeter, or or Tommy for that matter. But I, I think the only thing about Tommy was, again, I don't think he was as well-rounded a player as others that that if they were going to be on the first ballot. But think how many first ballot Hall of Famers there have been, or unanimous Hall of Famers. There's been none. There's been no unanimous uh, Hall of Fame. Voters. So some guys just refuse to vote. And, you know, one thing I was really happy to see that Major League Baseball changed the rules relative to these reporters and the fact that they, how they vote. And if they don't vote, they lose their vote. And a lot of them didn't want to know they, they had these uh, protest votes because of steroids and all that crap. Uh, so I'm glad Major League Baseball changed that. And, uh, Hopefully, some of these. Once this steroid era passes, we can get back more to more reality in terms of uh, voting for the Hall of Fame. Uh, we've got a question that just came in on my Twitter account at OHBB co-host. This comes from at Barney F. Kind of wondering if this is Barney Fife and where the bullet is, but that's another question. He asks us. This has absolutely nothing to do with the Indians or the Reds, guys. Detroit got David Price. Which starting rotation is better, Oakland with Lester or Detroit with Price? Detroit. I'll give you the floor first of all. Uh, I think it's not even close. I think Detroit with Price is. They have the three most recent Cy Young winners in the same rotation, and their number five starter could be a number one starter in most teams. Uh, that is the deepest starting rotation I've ever seen. I don't know enough about their their bullpen to say where that ranks. But I, I was thinking the other day when I saw that, imagine with that starting rotation if Detroit had Chapman. Oh. <laughs> the problem is they can't get to Chapman. Well, That's right. their problem. <laughs> you're right. I, I mean, you can't expect 
that starting rotation to throw eight innings every game. You just cannot expect it. You need somebody to bridge the gap between maybe the sixth, seventh, and eighth, because Verlander's throwing a lot of pitches right now. He's lost two or three miles an hour off his fastball. Um, Scherzer, I think he's got the contract on the brain. Price is thankful to be in Detroit right now. How would you like to be Joe Madden, Mark? After the the streak that Tampa Bay put together to get back out of last place, mired in last place, 18 games under 500, and to get back into the race for the for not only the wild card but the division over the last 40 games, and have to walk into your locker room on Thursday night and say, guys. We just traded our best pitcher, but we're still in it. Do you, do you really think that they had a chance for that division? They, well, they I don't. Were, I'm not sure. The way they've been playing for the last 40 games, they've been playing better than anybody. But they were eight or nine games behind at the time of the trade. They'd won nine in a row. They lost one, then they won a couple more. Yeah, they were a hot team. But they in the last 40 games, they only gained a game and a half in the standings. And I think what they came to was the reality check that Boston did, and they said, you know what, it ain't going to happen. It's, we got off to too bad a start. Uh, we can't sign Price next year anyway. What what I didn't like about that deal from Tampa Bay's perspective, they didn't get anybody. You would think no, they, they sure didn't. They, they'd get a major league ready player for Price. I mean, my God, could you have lured Tulowitzki away from? from Colorado, or they just didn't want to take on the money. They had to have been it. I mean, Price would have brought you back a lot more, I would think, than what they got. Now, we won't know for sure for another couple more years, but I didn't recognize any of those guys they got. And uh, it seemed to me that they were, for some reason, not getting the best they could have gotten for, for Price. I mean, Drew Smiley... Would you? I mean, if you're Detroit, basically what they did was they gave up Austin Jackson and Drew Smiley for David Joyce. What a steal! You mean for David Price? For David Price, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I mean, just an amazing steal for Detroit. But again, they've got their problems. They've got their bullpen problems. But what I understand, Mark, talking again to a few of my buddies in Detroit that the Tigers' front office feels like, you know, they offered that gigantic contract to Max Serzer at the beginning of the year, and he turned it down, saying he wanted to go into free agency. I think it was like six years for $130 million. It was $140, and he tur- it was 140? $144 million. Okay. They offered him that contract. Now, with Scherzer leaving Detroit, they could turn around and offer David Price that contract, and he'll probably take it. Yeah, I mean, I think Detroit put themselves in a very good spot, and they have such a deep organization. They, that, you know, replacing Austin uh, in center field is not going to be that tough. And with, with that pitching staff, I mean, they could let Verlander go or trade Verlander and still have, you know, a tremendous pitching staff of starters. I don't know who they have in the minor leagues, but uh, that that team's set to win for the next five or six years. Yeah, it, de- it definitely is. And and especially if you're building your team around Miguel Cabrera, 
Uh, did you see the stats on him tonight during the game? That from 2004, his batting average is his average batting average is 325 with with 35 homers and 120 RBIs a year. Yeah, that's not bad. No, I guess not. <laughs> you know, especially in this era, what you have to take into consideration, this is a pitcher's era, and he's doing that <coughs> against the norm. Offensive production is down so far. What that It's even more remarkable when you look at it in that, in that context that he's so far and away the best hitter in baseball right now that it, it's amazing. He, he's the guy you don't want to come up in any situation. Mark, that's going to do it for our Ask Us segment. Thanks a lot for our questions tonight. Don't forget, you can send in your questions to Demitch or Ask Us at UltimateSportsTalk.com or send me a tweet at it, OHBB co-host. Mark, that leads me to a question here tonight. You just brought it up. The hitting has gone down dramatically this year, basically because the pitching has dramatically gone up, almost to the comparison that you will probably remember from not, between 1968 and 1969. And my question is to you, back when the pitching dominated everything in 1968, remember what they did? They lowered the mound. They right. can't really lower the mound anymore. What are they going to do to increase hitting? Well, I think what you have to look at is the if you look back at the steroid era, you would make you know based on what is happening now is that the hitters benefited more from steroids than the pitchers did. Because if both are off now, and you have to make that assumption, they're both off the steroids, the, the, the hitters had benefited more from having the juice injected than the pitchers did. I'm not saying the pitchers weren't on it. I think they were. But, you know, swinging a baseball bat a couple hundred thousand times a year is pretty tiring, and that's what those guys do. And I think what's happening is the pitchers have gotten stronger through kind of more natural means, and the the, the hitters have not. And so the hitters have not been able to keep up with the pitching. And unless they do something – and I'm not sure what it is, uh, with, with a rule change or they they tighten the tri- strike zone or something like that, that's about all you can do. You, you make it more difficult to throw a strike, so they have to come in, you know, come down the middle more. Uh, but that's going to lengthen the game. It's going to make a lot more walks. People don't, don't want to see that. Frankly, I think this is a, a phase, uh, and I think it will end. But if, it, if it's this way in three or four more years, uh, you know, I think you have to look at some major rule changes. Well, and, and like I said, I don't think they can lower the mound any further. And with the, you know, ever since they lowered the mound, there have been an increase of arm injuries. And, you know, er, er, everything is cyclical. But how about what's going on with Cliff Lee right now and that, that ulnar collateral ligament that he's got, the UCL? Uh, I'm almost saying, Mark, that maybe the career of Cliff Lee is could be seeing uh, the end coming quickly. Well, if it's if he has to go through surgery, I think you're right. And imagine what would have happened if this if they'd have traded him at the deadline. <laughs> then you know his next start, uh, they must have known. Other teams around the league, you asked about why the Phillies didn't make a deal. I think other teams knew what was up. And it's I think it's kind of ironic they wait till what two days after the the trade deadline to make that announcement. So. Uh, yeah, you may be right, 
and uh, it's too bad because he's been a, he's been a great pitcher for a number of years. Mark, away from baseball, real quick. Did you see the uh, soccer attendance at the University of Michigan Big House over the weekend of one hundred nine thousand? No, that's amazing. That, that really yeah, I, I thought it was too. Actually, I didn't think it was for a soccer game. I thought what it was was free water to any Detroit citizen. <laughs> hey, you know Detroit and Toledo. Come on, Toledo has yeah. free water. Hey, Toledo's water ban uh, ended today. Yes, but did you see where that green slime is headed? Oh no, where? Cleveland. Oh, I'm serious. Great. Now the lake is going to catch on fire. Hey, Dave. Before we get any further, I'd like to do a little. Uh, recognizing of some some folks that uh, yes. that I've been working with of late, and uh, we have an announcement in the fact that my book Lasted Bat is coming out in a paperback version, uh, October fifteenth for national and international distribution. And my team of Linda Jordan, Jan Burden, and Deanna Bethart uh, are going to be helping us uh, promote that book uh, across the country and across the world, for that matter. We're going to have an audio version of the book. It's going to be able to be purchased uh, electronically online. You can order a PDF of it. And also, my second book, Golden Reich, will be out uh, by the end of this year. But I wanted to heads up to, to Linda Jordan, Jan Burden, and Deanna Bethart for all the help they've given me of late. And uh, going forward, we're looking forward to getting some more books out there. So thanks, guys. I appreciate all your help. Well, ladies, I believe me. I know after dealing with Mark over the last four years, it's not an easy situation. <laughs> so that, That's all they need to hear, David. That's all they need to hear. <laughs> but it could be a rewarding one. How about there? Uh, there you go. <laughs> hey, I want to bring up something before we go off tonight, Mark, that um, I think needs to be discussed, and I think Major League Baseball is really looking heavily into this thing, and that is the – Blocking of home plate by the catcher. We saw the Reds benefit from that situation uh, last week. And in all honesty, even though I was happy that the Reds benefited from it, I've got to say that in that situation, if and if you want to describe it, go ahead. But in that situation, I understand the rule and I understand the spirit of the rule. But in all honesty, Mark, if the catcher has the ball and the runner isn't even there yet, blocking the home blocking home plate, as far as I'm concerned in that arena, is out the window. Yeah, I agree to that. I really agree with that. And I think it would have been a moot point if Cozart would just plowed into the catcher, it'd have, he'd have been safe because they would have, it would have been easy to see the catcher had blocked the plate. What the, the rule says is you cannot block the plate if you don't have the ball unless the throw takes you into the baseline. And that's what the uh, Miami Marlins argued, that the throw came in from right field, took him into the baseline, and that's why he was blocking the plate. But that, that if you look at the replays, that is not what happened. He was blocking the plate be long before he had the ball, and he, and he did not give Cozart a direct path to the plate. I wish Cook... Cozart could have run into him, and then it would have been very obvious, and I don't think any of the Marlin fans would have complained about it. Well, then later on in this weekend, there was another situation where it was it was the same call. The catcher had the ball. The runner, and I can't remember what, what game it was, 
but the runner was still five feet away from home plate. And the catcher reached out to tag him. And I was watching this at a friend's house, actually my other son's house, to be honest, now that I remember. And I told my other son, I said, if that was me coming into home plate and the catcher's trying to stay away from blocking home plate, you've got to do a sweep tag on the guy. I would take my hands and just come down in a karate chop motion on that glove and try to knock the ball out of the glove if he's got a sweep with that. I, I think they've really got to take a look at this thing, Mark, because if you can't block the home plate with the ball, there's there's a lot of problems there. Yeah, they're going to address that, I think. I'm in favor of the... Of of the rule in general. I think it's the right rule. I don't think uh, it's worth it to have guys like Buster Posey get uh, possibly career-ending injuries. And it, it may, I mean, I've been a runner coming into home plate, and I'm 6'2", 220, and I can, I can deliver, I used to be able to deliver a pretty healthy blow to the catcher, but I didn't want to get hurt, and I didn't want to hurt him. You know, and yeah, I want to score, but you're, you're forced to come in there, shoulder down, and try and cold cock a guy uh, over a baseball game, and I don't think that's the way to do it. I think to, I mean, t- the other day I heard that there may be a situation where, in a play like Cozart, they would put a they would put a line, maybe ten feet, twelve feet up the baseline, up the third baseline, and put a, a line across it, uh, the baseline. It would become a force play if it's not close. And I agree with that. So, the, you know, the, the guy doesn't come barreling in just to, to try. The only way he would score is if he, you know, basically kills the catcher. That, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, now, on a close play, that's where it gets. Uh, as an example, Cozart would have been out by that new rule because he w- had not reached the point where he would have passed it. So all the catcher had to do is get the, ba- get the ball, step on the bag, Cozart would have been out. On a bang-bang play at the plate, you're still faced with the idea of a collision, but there'd be fewer of them. But if you're going to do that for the catcher, then don't you have to do that for a play at second base also? No, I think that the play at second base, the second baseman or the shortstop, has an opportunity to not make that throw or to jump over the runner. He has a lot more mobility there. The catcher is is there. He's like a fire plug. He can't go anywhere. Either he has to, you know, put his head down and get cold cocked, and, and uh, like the Pete Rose play, uh, or and, and risk a broken shoulder or a broken jaw or whatever, or or not. And you know, you don't want to be considered a wuss in front of your your teammates, so you you hang in there. And there's got to be a way that it, that it's done better than that. And oh, oh, the other here is a very interesting uh, suggestion I heard. Is you put an, a second plate behind the plate, and so if you if you slide into that second plate before the catcher puts the tag on the other plate, you're safe. So you wouldn't have the collision. You have the same space that that you cover, but it would eliminate the, the, the collision. So I thought that was a creative way to, to get around it. Uh, so that yeah, it's tricking the game up. Yeah, it is, but it's also you. You could be saving, you know, a, a couple careers or two. And I tell you, the worst injuries haven't happened yet. 
you're going to have some, if you have these collisions eventually, there's going to be some guys really, really hurt. Uh, and I, I have seen some guys break legs and, and things like that. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of the rule. I just think they have to make it better. Yeah, but don't you agree that injuries are part of the game and trying to abolish every single injury? I mean, for example, when I go back to the second base situation, they've made the phantom tag there unreviewable. And basically what I'm saying is is that if they are going to make that play at second base on a double play, the, fan, the phantom tag of the base, unreviewable, then if a catcher is going to have the ball and the runner is nowhere in the vicinity, you, you've got to give that guy some leeway to, to get in front of the plate and make the, make the tag and not complain. I, I understand what you're saying about how uh, the catcher on Zach Cozart was was in front of the plate. I get that. But the ball beat Cozart by five feet. Yeah, and that's what I said. If you have the rule where it's a tag, it's a force play, if he's not you know, beyond a certain point of the baseline, that's eliminated. But I, I don't see any problem with making rules that would prevent a player from getting permanently injured. And no ball game is worth that. And I don't think it makes any sense to to have this kind of macho BS where a 250-pound you know third baseman comes in at, at full bore and runs into a 250-pound catcher. Somebody's going to get hurt. And it, it, well, they've made that illegal. Well, yeah. I mean that's not going to happen anymore. But my point is is that if the catcher's got the ball, he's got to be able to block that plate and tag the guy out. Well, he doesn't have to do that if he has another route to make the out. What you're saying is he's, he's already out, basically, and they're going to have a collision for nothing, which I agree with. And there, there's got to be a way that you'd set up some kind of rule where the guy is out if he hasn't reached a certain part of the baseline. So you wouldn't have that. So, again, I, I'm in favor of the rule. Like any rule, I think it, it's just like video replay. Uh, they've got to improve it, although I think that has worked out pretty well this year. Yeah, I do too. I think the the replay, in all honesty, has been done a lot better than the other major sports. I would have to agree with you on that. Well, I hope you agree with me on everything, David. I think it would be in your no, I don't. It would be in your best interest to do that. Well, I've never been one to go for my best interest. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the as the Battle of Ohio continues, Mark, and you know, I got to say. The one thing I want to see during these next three games is it didn't materialize tonight in the game between the Indians and the Reds. But what I want to see during these next three games is Billy Hamilton trying to steal against Jan Gomes. You've got the best base stealer in the majors against whom I think has the best throwout percentage in all of baseball, bar none in Jan Gomes. That's a matchup that I want to see sometime during the, these next three games. Well, I had uh, written down just a note to Mark. Uh, I thought the Reds would lose the first game, they'd win the second, they'd lose the third, and they'd win the fourth, just because of the pitching matchups. Uh, I'm, so far, I'm one for one, but uh, I hope I, I get the next two out of three right. Yeah, the Indians just beat the Reds 7-1 to one in the first game. They've got the game tomorrow night, and then they've got two down in Cincinnati on Wednesday and Thursday. Mark, after this four-game set with the Indians, what do the Reds have over the weekend? 
they got a return match with Miami in uh, in Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about the Reds' schedule the rest of the way, <laughs> very interesting, is they've got 10 games left with uh, St. Louis. And uh, they've got six games with the Pirates, and they've got six games with the Brewers. So that is 10, that's 22 games with the three teams in their division. And that, boy, a lot can change very quickly if the Reds get hot. And Andrew McCutcheon is out for the Pirates until the 1st of September. Oh, I did not hear that. Yes, he oblique strain. They put him on the 15-day DL, but he's at least out three weeks. He'll be out till the 1st of September. Well, that's going to hurt them. And the, the Indians have the Yankees. They'll be in New York. Mark, before we leave tonight, I do want to mention... Uh, the loss of whom I thought was a great sportscaster was one of the first ones that came out in cable at the old TBS, Pete Van Weeren, a former uh, sportscaster and announcer for the Atlanta Braves, uh, died over the weekend of cancer. He was 69 years old and another one of the great voices in our profession, Mark, that has been quieted way too soon. I thought he was... He was one of my favorite announcers growing up. I mean, he not growing up, but uh, he's not that much older than I am. But listening to him for so many years, starting when I was in my 20s and 30s, uh, he, he had such a smooth delivery. He was acerbic. He was funny. And he was as knowledgeable about baseball as anybody I'd ever heard on the air. Uh, a lot of these guys, they, they try to fake it like they know what they're talking about, like Tom Brenneman. I know you like him, but I don't. Uh, but Pete Van Weeren, he, he, was a, he was a class act, and I was really sorry to hear that. He and Skip Carey, I think, were an underrated duo. I think both of those guys, Carey brought something to the booth, mainly a six-pack, and Pete Van Weeren brought the knowledge. Yeah, and Carey, I mean, they, they were such a great team because they were both kind of laid back and, and, and uh, yeah, kind of acerbic, and then Don Sutton got in that group, and he, I thought he was pretty good, too. I mean, the, they had a great broadcasting team for a number of years there in, in their heyday in the mid-90s where they were winning every every year. So, uh, yeah, I was very sorry to hear that as well. Yep, out, outstanding announcer, Pete Van Weeren, gone at the age of 69. Mark, well, the trading deadline is over. We've got two months to either get in it or forget it. We'll talk to you again next Monday night. Have a good one, Dave. You too. That's going to do it for tonight's show. Don't forget my Ultimate Sports Talk show coming up Thursday night. Mark and I will be back with another Ohio Baseball Weekly show next Monday night. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer. But most of all, our thanks to you for listening. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Monday night at 9 o'clock. Good night, everybody.